You're listening to Highlights from One Planet podcast interview with Harriet Bulkley and Johannes Strippel. Harriet holds a joint appointment as a professor at Durham and Utrecht Universities. Johannes Strippel is an associate professor in political science at Lund University and is the project coordinator at Climaginaries. So that to inhabit those post-fossil worlds is, I think, really crucial. Yeah, so I mean, in in a way, what you were asking us about this scenarios and modeling and how important it is to be able to do that for the future, in a sense, it is important, but it has become such a dominant way of telling stories about the future worlds that we will inhabit that it's it's become the it's in some sense it's so taken for granted that nobody thinks that it's quite extraordinary to imagine, say, a world where, you know, we've reduced energy use from fossil fuels by 80 or 100% by 2050. I mean, that's that's a relatively extraordinary thing to try to do. But much of the kind of modeling and scenarios just sort of make it sort of normalized and mundane and also suggest that there are singular futures to which we will aspire, where, for example, all cars are electric, hydrogen is the dominant fuel or you know so there's there's kind of like one blueprint for the kind of futures that we might want but one of the things we like about this approach to storytelling and narrative kind of uh, accounts of futures and also this uh, the genre of experimentation is that it tells us that those future worlds will always be multiple there's not going to be a singular low carbon world that we all inhabit that looks the same everywhere i mean there isn't a singular present, so there won't be a singular future. The idea that climate was something that could be governed by something that was called climate policy, and the climate policy were then some kind of coherent policy field. We have water policy, and we have policy for this and that, and if you just have the right policy portfolio in place, the thing we talk about, think about as climate change will then be governed. I mean, that we had that idea for, um, for, for some time, but now it's just not tenable anymore. I mean, climate change is just, it's just everywhere. It's in every question. It's, it's, it's there as, um, it's ubiquitous. And that's what we have been written about in two books a lot, that they, the ways in which you think about power and governance in relation to climate is so manifold. There is no place from where you govern climate or climate policy. So it's, it's not, it's therefore you can't grasp it from the classical political science imagination, I think. So it's, it's political science is not a, very useful starting point for analyzing power and politics around climate change. That being said, questions around power and politics is very central to all things climate. And it's often then forgotten for for putting other things in the foreground. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, if you think about something like how do you govern fast fashion, oil production, you know, a transition in, in the major proteins that we eat, how people mobilize around cities it's really difficult to think that you could do that all through something called climate policy because of course it would affect welfare policy food policy education policy you know uh, infrastructure development and and everything and so that's both the challenge and the interest of, of this area of work that we do speaking of education you're speaking of policy and, and top down and but we all as you say we all have to be a part of this and it can't just be climate scientists or politicians we have to we have to take part i mean what do you feel about in terms of i don't want to say authoritarian solutions but i mean i think i have two real responses to that i think for me most of the agency for change doesn't lie with with 
individuals, it lies with those with power, capacity and resources. Um, those might be amongst amongst others, uh, you know, investment holders, pension companies, large corporations and governments, uh, large um, large institutions such as universities, the Church of England and others who have sufficient, you know, who have significant land capital and knowledge holdings to which they should be, you know, putting those holdings towards these ends. So my sense is once all of those organizations, institutions uh, have made changes, then I think we can expect individuals to also make changes. But there needs to come from leadership, it needs to come from stewardship, it needs to come from you know, and you see, so for me, it's not a question of authoritarianism. It's a question of leadership. It's a question of, of those actors who have the most capacity and have the most responsibility acting first um, and ensuring that any transition is done in such a way that it's just that those people who bear the most responsibility, those organizations and as well as those individuals who bear the most responsibility for climate change are asked to act first rather than uh, asking those who have least to act first. So, you know, I'm, I'm quite committed to that. And and while I do feel like many individuals feel, you know, they want to be able to show that they make a change on the ground, whenever anybody asks me, well, you know, what things can individuals do to make a difference? I always say um, they can make sure that they take a job in an organisation that's working and committed to climate change. They can uh, make sure that if they are taking out a pension or a mortgage that they're they're doing so in a way you know that is responsible for those things as well so taking individual action which is part of larger collective efforts to me is always going to be better than you know saying okay well just wear a jumper and turn the lights off a bit more which I think is pretty ineffective both in terms of how people feel about their action that they're doing and in terms of what difference it makes to the planet if that's the option I'm very committed to the idea that we shouldn't be, you know, we should be able to show that there are good lives ahead that are, you know, that are climate friendly, that we shouldn't be suggesting that this change is going to take away some of the fundamental things that people value and care about. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, okay, maybe you can't have Lego made of oil. But that doesn't mean that children can't play games, right? <laughs> so it's like, it's a question of sort of working with that. You know, what is it that we, when we say we need to leave some things behind and give things up and do things differently, what do we mean? So, yeah, it's, it's a complicated issue to think about what climate change means globally and what it means in different contexts. But I, I think, you know, both Johannes and I would say that it, it's always kind of embedded into the social and political structures that are that are taking place on the ground and that it can't be addressed now this is a big challenge for the united nations framework convention the paris agreement is it it's very difficult to address climate change from the center right from one organization and we've seen that over the last 30 years with the paris agreement you know since till we got to the paris agreement is that that's a key difference is the Paris Agreement tries to bring on board all the other actors who are needed to try and govern climate change in all of these multiple ways because it's not possible to do so without them Um, but whether it's you know whether it's going to be enough too fast uh, you know have we got enough time to get these things done there's always going to be a question and there's a lot of concern that for example um, you know that will lead to the plantations and monocrops and so on rather than the protection of nature or the respect respect for indigenous land rights so 
this kind of, you know, as the kind of imperative to act on climate change just becomes growing, it can't just be a kind of, you know, climate first kind of policy. Um, it needs to be a kind of climate and policy, I guess. Yeah, but, you know, many of my colleagues would tell me, you know, it's enough difficult already to be acting on climate change, Harriet, but, you know, where, do we want to live in a climate a world where climate change is addressed at the expense of creating huge amounts of racial injustice? Probably not. It, it's so important that you remind us of our ethical responsibilities. I, I think you say there's not just one solution, but I think a lot of people are praying for like one solution. And uh, you have to remember the, the many different parts of culture that might be stepped on for, I don't know, putting in the hands of maybe huge organizations and, and all, all those things. But so, so thank you for uh, helping us. And there's a lot of concern that, for example, um, you know, that will lead to the plantations and monocrops and so on rather than the protection of nature or the respect respect for indigenous land rights so this kind of you know as the kind of imperative to act on climate change just becomes growing it can't just be a kind of you know climate first kind of policy um it needs to be a kind of climate and policy i guess yeah but you know many of my Colleagues would tell me, you know, it's enough difficult already to be acting on climate change, Harriet. But, you know, where, do we want to live in a climate, a world where climate change is addressed at the expense of creating huge amounts of racial injustice? Probably not. It, it's so important that you remind us of our ethical responsibilities. I, I think you said there's not just one solution, but I think a lot of people are praying for like one solution. And uh, you have to remember the, the many different parts of culture that might be stepped on for I don't know, putting in the hands of maybe huge organizations and all, all those things. But so, so thank you for helping us understand that. And how's, as you have been both been imagining uh, climate futures um, and you sp spoke about how uh, your daughter uh, thought about the 1980s as being like the 1940s to you. And you think on, you think back to the past the things that we were able to experience and, and a connection with the natural world. Do you have some like memories that you want to, that's, that's what this is all about. That's what we want to preserve for the next generation. One thing that came to mind and some, something that me and Harriet has been talking about is the, the idea of the hero, the, the hero story, the hero that will come and make everything good again. So we, we've done something wrong and we're looking for the hero. And that hero could be Greta Thunberg or the Paris Accord or it's all those big things. And this, this longing for the hero to come and save us is, is one, it's a great fallacy. It's a great danger in, in wanting that one to come back and make things good again. And it, solutions or the things that will be better will always come from much more the margin and the things we don't see and the things that are unexpected and uh, from the fringes it's uh, so if, so looking forward one shouldn't then put too much emphasis on on the heroes uh, out, out there those that that's not where where change really is uh, coming from probably understand that. Thank you, Harriet Buckley and Johannes Stippel for your work on Climaginaries and Narrating Climate Futures and so many other books and projects for envisioning societal transformation and transitions to a post-fossil world so together we can make a more sustainable future. Thank you for adding your voices to the One Planet podcast. Oh, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's been fun.
We hope you've enjoyed this program and listening to the highlights of this podcast. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click on subscribe. Thanks for listening.